Alright, three, two, one. How's it going, everybody? And welcome back to the Nerd Stuff with Ian 2.0 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ian. And you guys already know from the title, it's another one. It's our last of the What If books for the month of August. I figured since that was the theme. And I figured I would actually start with the first What If book that Marvel put in for its What If line, which was. Marvel's What If, What If Spider-Man Had Joined the Fantastic Four? Now, since the story has been conceived, technically, Spider-Man actually is a quote-unquote backup member of the Fantastic Four. And he was also one of the members of the Future Foundation. He also filled in for Johnny Storm during Jonathan Hickman's Fantastic Four run, where Johnny Storm had... An epic hero moment, and everyone thought he had died and passed away. Which, to me, I still encourage you guys to read Jonathan Hickman's Fantastic Four run. If you have not, it is definitely, if you are somebody who likes, you know, the science stuff, and kind of wants a good Marvel book that really, at the end of the day, encapsulates and does a great job of being cohesive, then I definitely suggest Jonathan Hickman's Fantastic Four. And Jonathan Hickman's Future Foundation. Both very much play together. And the Future Foundation is the continuation of the Fantastic Four. Where Reed Richards decides, well, the Fantastic Four won't be around forever. And we need to make positive change for the future. So let's get kids of the future who are among the smartest smartest out there. Who are in the genius level conversation. And let's go in and let's give them a shot which was Valeria Richards, Franklin Richards, which was the son, the son and daughter of Reed and Sue Richards. Franklin being pretty much one of the most powerful mutants of all time. Valeria being one of the, I think, third smartest people in the world, or in the Marvel Universe. Then you had the Moloids, you had multiple different characters that really played well, and then you had Spider-Man, who, pl- who took the fourth spot, of pretty much Johnny Storm, and to me, I actually kind of liked it. I actually, sorry, side note, kind of before I even go into the what if story, I actually kind of like the Future Foundation. To me, I feel like it's very underutilized part of the Fantastic Four that I feel like only Jonathan Hickman really knew what to do with it. Plus, their costumes were super cool. Like they were like a classic black and white. With, it just it looked good. It was cool seeing Spider-Man in a black and white costume. It was just cool in general to see them in something different. Now, it wasn't forever. They, of course, went back to the classic black and blue. But still, it was something cool. And to me, I feel like it was a positive step to move the group of the Fantastic Four forward. You know, how many times can you have them go into space? How many times can you have them explore other universes? How many times can you have them do this and that? You know, and John Nickman was like, well, this is a natural regression. Reed Richards always wants to fix stuff. Why not go in and make a group of young children he wants to help groom and help increase their intellect and their knowledge and let them build up to the future? Because this way, when it's time, when he can rest and relax along with Susan and Ben and Johnny and Spider-Man, a.k.a. Peter Parker... They knew the future was in good hands, and it was a concept. It was a fan. It was a good family story. But I will 
cover that at some point. I think I may or may not have talked about it in my old podcast. I might do a updated one of it. But let's get into the what if issue number one. Now, what if issue number one is, again, what if Spider-Man had joined the Fantastic Four? And the writer on it was Roy Thomas, who at the time was pretty much one of the chief editors at Marvel. And he was really Stan Lee's, you know, disciple. He was the guy that really was supposed to be the next Stan Lee, who really did a lot of great stories and great work for Marvel. So you had him as the, pretty much the written he was the writer, and he also edited, and he conceived the whole idea. Artist was Jim Craig and Pablo Marcos, who was... They are both artists, but Pablo Marcos did the inks, and you had Jim Craig, who did the pencils. And the story, honestly, it plays out... I liked how they did it. Is With this Fantastic Four, how they did What If is... It starts off with the issue number two. Imagine if, or technically, imagine if the Amazing Spider-Man number one, or technically, yeah, I think it was Amazing Spider-Man number one, not Amazing Fantasy number 15. What if Spider-Man had gone in, and when his first adventure was to go to the Fantastic Four to join up, because he viewed the Fantastic Four as, hey, he's like, hey, well, they're making money. We'll kind of find out. You know, Spider-Man, of course, faces off against him. And he finds out they're actually a non-profit group. And Spider-Man, at the time, he's like, I'm looking for money. Like, I'm trying to, you know, get paid. He's like, I'm not trying to just be a hero for nothing. Which plays into his character later on, for the most part. Spider-Man's always one of those characters that's just down on his luck. But, in this, they divert. So, he pretty much... They have their... Spider-Man faces off against the Fantastic Four... As he's leaving, Sue Storm calls out to him, like, hey, wait. And then they talk to the rest of them, and they're like, there might be a way that we can actually pay you to keep you on. The only thing it has to be is, you with us, you know our identities are out there. You need to trust us enough with your identity. And so Peter Parker, of course, reveals himself, and apparently being Peter Parker to them, and they form the Fantastic Five. You know, they have a press conference. Reed Richards ends up exonerating Spider-Man of some mishaps because during that time you had pretty much Spider-Man was accused of tampering with J. Joe Jameson's son, John Jameson's rocket ship and all sorts of fun stuff that went with that. And it's still lined up with continuity. Well, they changed up those small things with Spider-Man coming back. Now all of a sudden they're like, hey, we'll find a way to pay you. This way Peter can still be paid also helping out on May, and it lined up well. And you dealt with classic villains from the Fantastic Four, like the Red Ghost, and Namor the Submariner, the Puppet Master. A lot of great, rich Fantastic Four characters that very much encapsulated the early adventures of the Fantastic Four. And they played it out differently, where now instead of the Fantastic Four really having to rely upon... You know, themselves, you now have Spider-Man, who's got a spider sense, strength, agility. He makes up where, you know, you had Sue Storm, really, she could do force fields and she could go invisible at that time. She really wasn't nearly as powerful as she could be that as she got more developed later on by John Byrne and Jonathan Hickman and a lot of other writers. And you had Reed Richards, of course, you know, he really, 
he was the ge- he was still a genius, but he was still brash when it came down to Sue Storm. He was trying to you know get with her, but during this time, they Reed hadn't even expressed his true love towards her. And Susan, of course, had really just met Namor, and this, of course, was their return battle. And of course, during that, you had a lot of events change. And they cover all the issues. They list them off like issues 12, 13, 14, 15. With one of the big first adventures they had that really solidified kind of a... Because during this 35 issues, they went over some of the classic adventures. The first villain they came across was the Red Ghost. And his ability was more or less intangibility. He was more or less exposed to... I, I'm trying to think how I want to express, explain him. But yeah, I think he was express, exposed to... Cosmic Rage is some sort of radiation that allowed his body to become intangible. And so, don't quote me on it, but he he's a classic uh, Fantastic Four villain. But overall, he's not used anymore. He's more or less been retired. He's somebody I think they could bring back. But in comparison to like Doctor Doom and Namor and other characters that and villains they could use, he's not a widely used one, unfortunately. So... During that, the Fantastic Four, or technically the Fantastic Five, which was they made a mission to go off to the blue side of the moon, which is has oxygen, they're able to breathe on it. It's where the Inhumans future settled down in the future. So normally it would have been the four, which would have been Invisible Woman, Human Torch, The Thing, and Reed Richards, aka Mr. Fantastic. Well, they're like, well, we originally when we built the ship, it was only meant for four. So Sue was like, well, I'll just stay behind. This way, you had Spider-Man, Human Torch, The Thing, and Reed all go and go to the blue side of the moon. That's where they come across the Red Ghost. They managed to beat him pretty handedly. You know, he does give them some issues, but they managed to beat him. But during that, Sue's kind of doubting her place within the group. She's like, well, you know, with Spider-Man around, why am I needed? He, he's similar strength. He's strong like The Thing. Not nearly as strong, but he possesses power. He's agile, he has web shooters, he's smart, he does a lot of things that I don't necessarily bring to the group. And it really pushes on the concept of Invisible Woman's insecurities and just going really off of classic, you know, characters during that time, particularly for a powerful female character like Sue Storm is, you went off her insecurities. You know, if you were, you know, with a group of you know, a group, and all of a sudden somebody comes in who's able to outdo you for as powerful as you could potentially be, you're seeing their more traits are better off physically being shown. You know, of course, you're going to feel left in the background. And Sue starts to, you know, feel those feelings where she's like, well, I don't, I'm not really being shown up. She's like, I wonder if I'm really even worth it to be on the team. And they kind of play that up. Now you also have where the Fantastic Five now battle classic Spider-Man villains like the Vulture. And instead of, you know, Spider-Man having to outwit him with, you know, coming up with the device that demagnetizes his wings, you had where the Fantastic Five or Fantastic Four plus Spider-Man end about outwitting him. You know, they just end up demagnetizing him and Human Torch, of course, is, puts up so much heat that actually takes off the wings of the Vulture and he falls, lucky enough the Fantastic Four grab him, and they easily defeat him. And it shows how powerful they could be as a group of five. Realistically, how good they really could be. And it shows you how easily Spider-Man really actually fit in with the Fantastic Four versus a lot of other groups, versus a lot of other heroes. You know, from his friendship with Johnny Storm 
to the thing where he's always been somebody who they appreciate. Who the thing, you know, it took him a little bit, but Spider-Man grew on him. To Reed Richards appreciating Peter Parker's intelligence and allowing him to, you know, grow and be smarter and really become a, his own genius and a man of himself. And Invisible Woman Sue Storm really admiring the fact that he is somebody that really matches well and he is, you know, he sees that Peter Parker really is a nice young man who really wants to do right. And each of them, he fit very well within their group. In a lot of ways, if they just did a universe where that was it, you know, they were the Fantastic Five, I think they could do it and I think it would be interesting. But again, you know, it's never going to... That that was the point. Is he matched up well, but what made the Fantastic Four so great was they felt more like a family. Peter always kind of in way... He was always going to be the best friend of Johnny Storm. Because for... Peter Parker, that's kind of what he ends up being. And they've really kept that a constant. You know, people always think, oh, it's Harry Osborn. Actually, it's not. It's actually Johnny Storm is Peter Parker's best friend. He's the guy that's always been in his corner. He always helps him out. Even in the Ultimate Universe, he was always there to back him up. You know, and they had countless Marvel 2-in-1s and Marvel Team-Up adventures. And they really solidified it. You know, from the spider buggy that Johnny built for him. And they really allowed that to plan it. And that's what it just does so well. But with that, Spider-Man, he's still going to be an outsider. He, you know, for as much of family he is and a best friend to Johnny, to the others, you know, they love and respect him. But he'll never be one of the original four because they're in a way a dysfunctional, functional family. It's weird to put it that way. They're like a normal family in a lot of ways, you know, where things aren't perfect, people, things aren't cookie cutter. They're, and that was the appeal of the Fantastic Four. And that's kind of what the appeal of Spider-Man was, was Spider-Man wasn't your normal cookie cutter hero. He wasn't like Superman or Batman. That's what made them go so well together, but at the same time, with that being said, they also need to be, you know, very much separate. If they were together, they very much would be a cohesive unit. Which wasn't really pushed until, you know, years later. But, you know, that I can go in depth with how Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four truly are. You know, they were always meant to be a group. And like I said, they did the Future Foundation and it worked really well. And I liked the stories they did and I liked what they do. And I always appreciate, you know, Spider-Man being somebody that people underestimate. Especially, he is a genius in the Marvel Universe. He might be a slacker and a mess up in certain areas because he can't get a college degree even though technically he got his master's or technically his PhD thanks to Dr. Octopus, but that's Superior Spider-Man, which at some point I will talk about, but I digress. So, after going through all the classic villains of the Fantastic Four back in the issue, you know, of course, they end up coming across Namor again. Well... They're off, while they're off on the blue side of the moon, the regular, you know, Spider-Man, Human Torch, The Thing, and Reed Richards, Sue is on Earth. And she gets called away by Namor. And during this time, they still had the conflict, the major conflict between Sue and her love triangle, which was between Namor, Samaria, the, the king, the royalty, and Reed, who was the genius who was shy 
but he knew to fight for it, but he never truly could show it. And it was at this, this way before that Sue and Reed ever got married. And they played that out. But Sue ends up getting, you know, hypnotized by a hip, I think it was a hypno fish or whatever that Namor has. Now, what people see later is that within it, you have Puppet Master who's controlling Namor. And he's, of course, using that to, you know, separate out the Fantastic Five. He's going at them. And parents Namor and Sue Storm end up going under the sea. Well, Reed and the rest of them, they come back to Earth and they recognize, well, Sue's gone. They're looking for her. And, of course, they realize that she Namor has got her. Namor sends a message and he tell, tells them if you want to see Sue, she has come to Atlantis. And, of course, they go, we got to go. And Reed, of course, is gung-ho to get her back. During this, you had where what would have been a normal story, which would have been Alicia would have joined up with them, joined up with the Thing, Johnny, and Reed. Instead, Alicia, you know, crying, having a fit, Ben told her, it's okay, we'll take care of it. And it was just Spider-Man, Johnny, Reed, and the Thing. And they all came down to Atlantis, and they have a battle out with... With Namor, they find out that Namor is actually being controlled. Namor ends up overcoming and overpowering, you know, the mind control of the Puppet Master, who his ability really is, he has a special kind of clay where if he builds any figure, whether, let's say, best way to give an example is, is if he made a sculpture of me, if he made a figure of me out of clay, what he would do is he could use that figure to do whatever he wanted. So I would be under his control. And so, if he wanted me to rob a bank, if he wanted me to do this, that, he could technically make me do it. In my mind, I would not be able to overcome it. Because he used a special kind of clay that enables him to, you know, control another person. And it's a very interesting character. He's not the most widely used all the time due to the fact that he can be pretty limited. And in the sense of, he really kind of has to be one of those guys that you use in a tactical scheme, and you got to use him very well, if that makes any sense. It's like, anyway, you'd have to really use him more as he's not the main villain, but he's the guy that gets you to the. He's the guy that can help you win the battle, if that makes any sense. You're better off having him instead of just saying, oh, you're not powerful enough. And so they play that out. So the thing, of course, he has to save Sue, who she's trapped in this glass glass container and surrounded by them like some ridiculously strong octopus that the thing ends up just overpowering and slinging out the way well puppet master pretty much is pretty much is worried he's noticing he's losing control of namor namor no longer wants to listen to him and so now he's like well now i have to do something else well before he can really do anything, the octopus that the thing flew away comes at the ship. And perhaps there's a hole that can there's a hole that came from the shuttle or where they're at in Atlantis due to the fact of the events of the thing, everything like that, they're having to save Sue. They end up pretty much Puppet Master's like, Well, I gotta take these guys out, but before he can really do anything, the octopus that the thing threw away comes at him. And he's like, oh crap, i got to make this this clay octopus to control it. Well, unfortunately, before you can do anything, you can't control a mindless beast if 
you have if it doesn't really have the thought process to be controlled. So he ends up getting killed off, and Namor and Sue pretty much, you know, Namor gives Sue a chance to, you know, who she want to be with. And Sue, of course, she expressed her feelings that she always kind of felt left out. She wasn't really needed. So what Sue does is she goes and gets transformed and become more amphibian, becomes like, you know, Namor, where she can live. She's Atlantean. No longer is she human. And Reed has to accept that because he never truly was able to express his love towards Susan. And before Reed could really do anything to change that back, Namor notices that, you know, she can't breathe. That because she's like a normal fish now, she's like Namor. Unlike Namor, who can breathe both air and wa- breathe in both air and water, she needs water to breathe. So Namor, of course, grabs a machine, chucks it at the glass to break it out to get water in there to save her. And the rest of the Fantastic Four, they just have to leave. Reed being begrudgingly just being like, we have to go. I can't make her come back with us. And Reed kind of has to, in a lot of ways, you know, sit back and watch. Because he didn't step up to the plate to truly show that Susan was really, truly important to him. And by the time before he could do anything, Susan had already chosen Namor because... She was young and brash, and at the time, she didn't know what she wanted. And now, you know, Reed has to kind of deal with it. And that's more or less how the story ends. And it's one that I felt like, it's not the strongest of tales, or it's not the most, I guess to say, most exciting. But it definitely sets the tone for what it establishes for characters. You know, within that issue, within issue one, it really gave you the concept of what what if was. You know, it's what if this specific event happened differently. And it encapsulated that in a very good way. Now, there's plenty of great stories like what if Craven the Hunter not killed himself at the end of, you know, Spider-Man, Craven's Last Hunt. You know, spoiler, sorry. But definitely, it's to be honest, it's not even really like it's the over-the-top craziness of it. Definitely, I would say read that as well, but I'll I'll do an episode on that sooner or later, because it's an old story from the 80s, and it's arguably one of the best Craven stories, so I probably should have prefaced that before I went and spoiled it, but I highly suggest reading it, or even listening to it on audiobook, I was surprised that, of all things, that there's a lot of Marvel books that have actually been translated to audiobook. So, which is kind of a fun one to kind of always have out there. But there's plenty of great stories, particularly with What If. It really just comes down to really, truly, you know, best way I want to put it is, all these early ideas with What If, they really got paid off in the future. Spider-Man joined the Fantastic Four, which he ended up joining the Future Foundation. You know, Jane Foster picking up Thor's hammer. Instead of Donald Blake, they did a what if of that, which later became canon because Jane Foster did pick up the hammer of Thor. You had, you know, a lot of interesting stories. You know, even when you had Thor or Hulk, that one issue of Hulk that I went over when he went back to the microverse and he became more or less a barbarian savior there, that was later translated over into Greg Pak's Plant Hulk. So you see a lot of these what-if stories, they, in a lot of ways, 
they encourage future storytelling. And but they're better expanded upon because you know, back then a lot of the writing was their continuity wasn't crazy. It wasn't confusing back then. It was very straightforward. They're developing the characters as they go. You know, back then you didn't have the backlog of you know, all this history and understanding of, hey, where do you want to take this character? You know, you look at the Fantastic Four back when Jack Kirby and Stanley were writing and drawing it, and you look at what they really established, you truly saw groundbreaking moments. You know, the coming of Silver Surfer, Doctor Doom, Galactus, you know, all these great iconic characters that had such great iconic stories that later on, you know, have only been bolstered. You know, you had where Hulk went against, you know, Wolverine in early days. You had the Hulk, you know, really being tested. You had Iron Man, you know, before his armors became so sophisticated that it was, in all intents and purposes, like him literally just with nanites. Like, he literally, it's... The continuity back then was very much grounded. Nowadays, it's like, Throw it at the wall and see what happens. That's ultimately, you know, what a lot of these early what-if stories were meant for. And that's kind of why I chose to do the what-if month. Because I felt as though a lot of the times with a lot of newer comic books, we forget the old continuity. Or we forget about what was the stories like back then. And I say, not you don't always have to read those older stories. But if you do decide to, they're beneficial because it gives you an idea of, in a lot of ways, how do you make a story work? How do you make a story that's simple, not overly complicated, work really well? You humanize it. You don't come up with more grandiose events. Back then, man, I don't even think they really had event books. Really and truly, I think the probably one of the first event books was Secret Wars. Other than that, though, you just had stories. And even then, like it took them to what eighty four to even do Secret Wars, There's Secret Wars two, and then do all these other events since then. But you could tell back when a lot of these early comic books were being written that. Ultimately, like I said, they were still establishing everything. And it was so much easier to backtrack it because what they could do is they could really not even have to retcon a lot. They could just manipulate a small thing. And they could just add to it. And it fell, in some ways, a lot in line with what they needed. In other ways, it wasn't perfect. But at the end of the day, the story still worked. Because they were simple. They weren't over-the-top and grandiose. Now, were those stories perfect? No, by far they were not. But if we didn't have those stories, you wouldn't have had Dan Slott's Superior Spider-Man. You wouldn't have had Jonathan Hickman's Fantastic Four. You wouldn't have had Jason Aaron's Thor run. You wouldn't have had, you know, Jonathan Hickman's, you know, X-Men or Jonathan Hickman's Avengers and New Avengers. You wouldn't have had... You know, Craig Kyle and Kyle Yost, you know, X-Men. You wouldn't have had 
all these different characters and different you know teams and eras of these characters they w- you wouldn't have had it they wouldn't have been the influence upon them from those classic stories you could feel whether they were a what if or they were mainline continuity and i think that is truly what was important about these books and I think in a lot of ways, I feel as though, and this is just my thought, bringing back the what-if books I don't think would be a bad thing. I just feel like if you did do it, why not make it worth the reader's part? Why not make it worth the reader's time? You know, I, I would honestly say bring back the two-in-one stories of what-if. You know, we don't really need this such craziness that we got nowadays. You know, I think that, honestly, I think it'd be something fun. I think it'd be a cool idea. Now, I know they've tried to revise it here and there a couple times. Like, I think they had the last What If was in, like, 2018. I don't think it lasted super long. But then again, you know, they didn't build up to it in a lot of ways. Excuse me. In a lot of ways, with that being said... They didn't capitalize on stories that could have really used it. Because, of course, you have so many years of a character. You know, when you've got 60 years of Spider-Man, 60 years of Fantastic Four, 60 years of Thor and Captain America to play with, you know, of course you're going to have some sort of continuity issue. You're going to have some stories you're going to want to do. Now... Whether those stories are successful, that's another thing all entirety. But ultimately, at least to me, I feel as though looking back and seeing different stories, what if stories, regular continuity stories, comparing how the stories really compared and contrast to them, and then looking at how those stories and a lot of ways the what-ifs have truly changed the foundation of what Marvel really became, or what Marvel is now, shows you that those small stories really had a big impact on future writers. So, just kind of gives you guys food for thought. So, uh, yeah, I figured I'm going to close this one out. I figure you guys have probably had enough of me just rambling on about what if comic books, main continuity, all that fun stuff. And uh, yeah, I guess you guys will have to wait till next week to figure out what the uh, theme of the month is going to be. So with uh, that being said, you guys have a great day and uh, later.